you guys are, are two of my uh, interlocutors and, and favorite uh, individuals in the world. And perhaps uh, two people I would say that uh, I, I would, I would uh, please don't, don't be um, uncomfortable if I say I think you're both geniuses of some kind. Um, and also, I think you're, you're both very, ex almost different types of characters uh, uh, in almost an extreme polar opposite way. Like John is so conscientious and careful about you know everything he says and and, and alexander's out there on, on on twitter offending everybody feeding on his nietzschean hammer and uh so i love both those perspectives i think they're both great um even though you know some people uh would have a hard time with alexander and some people would not be able to get into the intricacies of john and, and uh, well said well said I, I love it both I, I love you guys both like so much and you've both uh you've expanded my uh my my life my 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 mind in, in so many ways so so i want to first start by thanking you and saying that i'm really you know thrilled to be having this conversation um john here is famous for a series called awakening from the meaning crisis uh, highly recommended every damn minute all those 50 episodes 50 plus episodes are, are fantastic so it's just just the cheapest smartest possible short route to understand the history of the West would be to follow Awakening from the Mini Crisis. Then he ends up with Paul Tillich as the solution, which is kind of surprising to me at least, but we can get back to that later. Highly, highly recommended. I'm in the process of, of writing a, a trilogy with John Sedeckvist, uh, where the first two books are called Synthism, Creating God in the Internet Age, and Digital Libido, Sex, Power, and Violence in the Network Society, which is very prophetic at the moment. But these two books are set to be followed by a third and last book, which is tentatively called Process and Event. And I am on fire about discussing some of the things I'm working with at the moment for that book with John tonight, and certainly with Andrew's input too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And me and John, in our last couple conversations with Jack, uh, Zach and Christopher Mastro Pietro, have been talking about um, you know reinventing ideas, re, you know reinventing perennial notions, um, and rethinking uh, things, um, uh, and and something that's been coming up uh, on the intellectual dark web uh, discussion is this idea of a renaissance. Um, intellectual deep web. Intellectual deep web, excuse me. It's this idea of a renaissance. Keep, keep the kids' stuff separate from the parents, so okay? Always. It, it occurred to me that Alexander wanted to talk about the past, right? A renaissance. Uh, and, and then John is talking about reinventing, and that's a futuristic idea. Whereas, on the other hand, Alexander's very much of a futuristic philosopher, and uh, John is also working on perennial issues. I hope that doesn't sound all confused, but I wanted to somehow combine the idea of reinventing uh, reinventing the new world, the, the new paradigm, whatever's coming next, which seems everybody seems to be agreed that we're moving into an entirely new era. Um, I want to, 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 to talk about reinventing these things. And then maybe Alexander can, you can talk about, uh, you know, this comparison between the axial age and the bronze age. Oh yeah. What happened was that I did a, Fantastic podcast called Techno Social Podcast, run by two of these wonderful whiz kids, Oliver yeah, Cox right, and yeah, Donald I've Pratt. Been on that. Yeah, I've yeah, been yeah. on there. They're, they're, they're intellectual deep web. Now you get it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so, so uh, Owen and Daniel then invited both me and Patrick Ryan to have a conversation. And Patrick Ryan is an amazing North American young mind, right? So, and both Patrick Ryan and I have been working towards 
to sort of reemphasize the difference between the Bronze Age and the Axial Age, because the Axial Age has always been sort of overrepresented and hyped, and you know this is wonderful period when all these great thinkers came forward. Uh, but in reality, I think the Bronze Age was actually the constructions and the sort of the the, the meta structures that we can now use. Uh, or have used ever since were created. And, and, and I'm working with that shift in this new book I'm doing and Patrick Ryan is doing the same thing simultaneously, interestingly enough. And, and I, I wanna address that because the, 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 there are some core issues here that are very, very important. Um, and I'd love to get into that tonight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and John, John has talked a lot about the actual age, and you've criticized certain aspects of the actual age, but I think yeah. that you're very much uh, also um, spoke. You're, you also, are, you know, appreciate a lot of the Greeks, and, and um, yeah. you've said that the axial age is kind of the grammar uh, of how we think about things uh, and that sort of thing. So maybe can you respond to Alexander? Well, to, I think to that, that thought. For, yeah, I want to pick up on the, the the word I like to use is reinventio rather than reinvent, uh, because inventio captures both invention and discovery. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's not quite like uh, just remaking. So, so it's sort of, the, the, the point about the inventio is it's a Janus-based term. It looks back, right, uh, to what has already been discovered, but it looks forward to what is to be invented, and it's supposed to sort of be beyond them, which I think is appropriate for what we're trying to do here. I think we're actually exemplifying that. And about the Axial Age and the Bronze Age, there's, so, there, I think there's a, uh, it's strand of my thinking that might connect up with what Alexander's saying, so I'll, I'll propose it and then we can, we can see if we can riff on it. And this is the idea, uh, uh, you know, and it's, I get this from Charles Taylor, uh, right, and the distinction between the continuous cosmos and the two world mythology. And then part of my critique of the Axial Age is that for all of the benefits that uh, Alexander already uh, uh, alluded to, uh, it has entrapped us into this two worlds mythology that has been very, very problematic and has become increasingly problematic precisely because I think one of the things the scientific worldview has done is, and I think there's a lot of benefit to this, um, it, is, it has re-embedded us, and I, I want to use that word, re-embedded us back into uh, a continuous cosmos. And so in some sense, we're back to a worldview that is strongly but strangely analogous to what we had in the Bronze Age, but we're also trapped within, you know, several world religions and uh, philosophical systems that have become deeply enmeshed in a two-worlds way of thinking. And so part of what, part of what I think, um, uh, I think the struggle we're facing and part of what I would try to, uh, what I want to reinventio is, because I think this is what cognitive science is pointing towards, what does it mean for us now to be, I'm going to try and use terms that are loaded, and therefore we should probably explode them, but maybe explore them. What does it mean to live, to be spiritual beings within a continuous cosmos? Because we have typically understood spirituality with two worlds language, and I think that we are getting back to... Um, John, John, would you would you like to just elaborate on what you mean with two world philosophy? So those oh, so, so, and also what I'm hearing is that's a dualistic worldview, right? As yeah, opposed yeah. to a monist worldview. Or, there's, 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 I mean, so 
I want to be clear that I think that this mythology does tap into phenomenological experience in an important way. Um, I'm not doing some sort of logical positivist move here. But what I mean by the two worlds mythology is an attempt to understand the human capacity for self-transcendence by positing uh, two different worlds um, that differ some, in some fundamental way in how real they are or how important they are or valuable they are. Uh, and of course, this is the this is a hypothesis. So this world is an illusion, or this world is unreal. This world could be an illusion, or it could be a decadent world, or a fallen world, mm -hmm. or right. It, it, there's many ways in which it pales in comparison. And I mean, this was you know this was the lightning rod for a lot of Nietzsche's invective, right? He really re objected uh, to this way because he hit one of one of his core ideas was is that. As science removes the plausibility of the upper supernatural world, where all the value ultimately inheres, we what we get is we get we get a kind of nihilism. We get this world, which was always understood only in instrumental and comparative terms, and that's part of uh, that's part of the history of nihilism. And I think that's an important point Nietzsche made because I, I see what he's doing. He's bringing these two ideas together: the scientific world is collapsing us, putting us back into a continuous cosmos. And yet, because of the two-world grammar, the only way we can now relate to that, unlike how people related to it in the Bronze Age, the only way we can relate to it is in a nihilistic fashion. And like Nietzsche and a lot of the post-Nietzscheans like Heidegger, I want to understand that deep continuity with the world, with the continuous cosmos, in a positive way, in a life-affirming way, in a way that provides a new grounding for spirituality in the cultivation of wisdom. And that's what I see for e-cognitive science afforded. And that's why I turn to it as a resource. Okay, I'll come in here. You know that I'm a Zoroastrian, and I've accused yeah. you of being a Buddhist. Probably you're not, yeah. so there you go. Okay. okay, what I did was that I, I went through all the texts from the 19th century. Hegel and Nietzsche both proposed Zoroaster as the beginning and the end of all morality and uh, found out that they actually did study the Avesta. They studied the Iranian culture intensely. It was high fashion in Germany in the 19th century. And that led me back to the original religion of Zoroastrianism. I converted in 1992 and I started exploring it. And I find it very interesting that this is like the peak of the Bronze Age. This is like 1700 before Christ in Central Asia, the Zoroaster appears. He locks himself up with a guy called Vishdaspa for 23 years. And then they walk outside of the door and they, you know, reveal a new world religion or a reformed religion as they would have be adamant that they did. It's similar to what happened in India with Brahmanism versus Hinduistic uh, folk religion. But, but what they did in Persia and I found that very interesting. What later happened was that we had several Persian empires that lasted for over 1400 years after that. And Egypt only attempted one empire that lasted for about six or seven years was a complete tyranny. Now, how did the Persians avoid creating a tyranny? And this way, it's where it gets interesting. What they took was something that existed already in nomadology, sort of the original Ur religion of, of people on the move. Say, so, say so people on the move, they will go into a mode of what Mircea Aliad would say, the eternal return of the saint. And that's like the only story you've got. Every new year is a new world, but it's the same world as last year. That's all there's to it. And what Zoroaster uniquely adds, 1700 before Christ, is the idea that we could have another narrative that I call eventology. This is a narrative of linear time where things are happening following the arrow time and an event can happen 
that is so dramatic that it changes the rules of the world forever. So this is the original eventology. But what the Surastas did long before the sort of pop versions called Islam and Christianity pop up later and cause a lot of trouble, was that the Surastas understood that they divided the leadership between the, the, the chieftain and the priest, and they must always be separated. So in Persian culture, that means you have the Shah and Shah, the king of the kings. And he would have his own capital, his own court, and he would run the affairs from there. We'd call it executive power today in America, right? And then you have a legislative power, would be the priests. And the head priest would be called the Mobad and Mobad, the priest of all priests. He would have a separate capital, separate courts, and run things from there. This was the system the Zoroastrians implemented in the Persian Empire for the next 1400 years, and they avoided turning. So when the Egyptians later mimicked it with that Natum, you know, 400 years later, probably because they only had one river, they didn't have two rivers that had to sort of communicate with each other, you just had the Nile. Uh, and of course, like Natum came up with the idea that there should only be one Pharaoh who talks, he alone talks to the sun god, and there's no rain god in long, it's just the sun god. And this, of course, creates the ultimate tyranny. When we look at systems like Hitler, Stalin, Mao, in the last 100 years, they're all sort of mimicking like Natum and of course, North Korea today. So what they did in Persia was that they separated the chieftain and the priest, which is actually very logical for any sort of construction you do with, with men. If you're going to organize men into an army or a hunting team or whatever, you've got to have one guy who is the, he's the king of the mind and another guy is the king of the body. And I think this is where it gets confusing later when the Gnostics, that the Zoroastrians went after aggressively when the Gnostics appeared. When the Gnostics started happening in the Persian Empire, this is like the Sassanid Empire, the last major empire before the Muslims came. So from the, the third to the fifth century, you had the Gnostics all over the place. They were called Mastakites, they were Manichaeans, yeah. and the Zoroastrians went after them because these guys took this idea and then put it into, this, into the body and separated body and mind and created the dual. So that's the two-world mythology. Yes, uh, right? yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that Zoroastrianism is aggressively monist. And to me, if you, start, if you stop looking at the West and, and, and whatever happened with the West, it essentially starts with the Jews and the Greeks, whatever came afterwards. But if you look at the West in a more expanded sense, the Middle East, with just Europe and America hanging on later, and then the East is China and India we can discover that in, in Eastern narrative, it's, it's absolutely fundamental that the world is monist. And dualism only catches on with these Gnostic sects. And to me, they've always caused the havocs that we have later with the pillar saints and the boy pharaohs and the ideas of perfection and infinity and immortality, all those ideas that are totally devoid of any sort of foundation in reality are, are all the results of that. Mm -hmm. Do you want to respond to that, John? Um, that I narrative? Not, I, I, I'm not, I mean, I've, I've studied a lot of Persian history. Uh, my partner is actually Persian. Um, and, and so, um, uh, but, but I think Alexander probably still uh, knows much more of it than I do. So I, 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 I would hesitate to uh, comment on uh, the historical things. Um, I, I would say that I want to, I guess it's more of a question that because on many, many people, many scholars that I've read, they tend to put uh, uh, Zarathustra later and they tend to put him in the Axial Age. Um, That's yeah. totally wrong. Totally, I can prove it. His, his language is completely Vedic. It, this is 1700 before Christ, certainly. And it's also prior to Akhenaten, which arrives 400 years later, which is just mimics the whole system the Persians created. 
So you can, the, the reason why they want to put Zoroaster like 600 before Christ, just to make him one of the axial age guys, one among the others. But there's no influence in Zoroaster's work from any Plato, any Confucius, or any of the other guys at all. Rather, Heraclitus is the one of the Greeks who's Zoroastrian. If you study Heraclitus' fragments and Zoroaster's Gothas, it's strikingly similar in thought patterns. And this is exactly where why Heraclitus' concept of the Logos is completely different from the biblical concept of the Logos, because Heraclitus' concept of the Logos is just straightforward Zoroaster's Asha, which later becomes Tao in Taoism. So it, it just, it, it's just how things operate, basically. That's what Asha is. And this is why Logos, to me, is... So Logos to, is the way? Logos means the way? Like no, no, wait a second. Like, like just, a, cut like a Chinese, just cut the Chinese side. I, I don't know. Whatever they, they just mimic I'm it. trying okay. to understand. Get us back to Zoroaster and Heraclitus, not confuse it too much, but it's Zoroaster's concept of Asha. Asha means in ancient Persia means how things work. That is Logos to the Persians. This is what Heraclitus picks up on. And then they take Logos as separate from mythos, which is how we then create a story about ourselves to make sense of the world. And we can allow it to fabulate whatever. And we keep that separate from the Logos. And there's also a third story with the Persians, which is pathos. And pathos is... Anything you want to keep your kids away from. Sex, violence, art, and radical transformation of any kind. So I'm, going, I'm working on these three different types of narratives that we constantly confuse with one another. And that's exactly what you know, we still do it today. We can't keep them separate. But we must keep them separate to understand the different roles they have. Hmm. Okay, so I, I want to slow down. You've got, let me make sure I've got the three. There's logos. Mythos. Um, Mythos. I do, I've done a lot of work on Logos and Mythos, so maybe we can talk more about that. Uh, pathos, um, I, I, I mean, I have a literary understanding of it, but I don't have uh, a philosophical understanding. So, so, so you watch pornography. Okay, it, it gets silly when pornography tries to be theatrical. If they have lines in the pornography, it's just, it's just in the way. You'll go straight to the fuck. So that, the, that is pathos. That is pathos. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to get the connection that I know in Aristotle between pathos and what becomes pathetic and things like that, and the pathetic fallacy. I, I avoid pathetics. I say pathic narrative to avoid right. pathetic. Like pathology also is, mis is a misnomer these days. Although in, in say, psychoanalysis, you use pathology exactly the correct way. So, so the pathic... State, state, the, the of, path state of your mind, right? The pathic is sort of the artistic primordial, you know, you know, Dionysian. beyond good and evil, Dionysian, Dionysian yeah. Nietzschean world. Okay, so, uh, and, and your, your claim, Alexander, is that these were appropriately related in Zoroastrianism? Yes. And, and they, they have become sort of mixed up and confused in... Uh, more modern thought or more recent thought? Well, they've, or... they've also been replicated successfully. And you see the pattern it, when the Jews rewrote the Exodus out of Egypt. It was no longer just the Egyptian prince called Moses, but actually the three siblings, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So in this triad of power, the split follows and the matriarch. The matriarch obviously is the older sister, Miriam. And, and the chieftain is obviously Aaron. And the priest is obviously Moses. And that's exactly why the Exodus makes sense with the three siblings. And that was, of course, a, a retelling of the Exodus out of Egypt that the Jews were inspired by the Persians when they later wrote and rewrote the Old Testament. So you see, you see the same pattern in the American Constitution that the French helped the Americans write 
clearly inspired by the Persians. So it's just like, yeah, you got president, you've got Congress, and you've got the ultimate matriarch is the Supreme Court, holding the other two guys responsible for whatever they promised to keep. So it, 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 you have this strong tribe that returns constantly in nomadology, returns constantly in storytelling of how you actually split power to keep it stable over time and to avoid tyranny. So I'm trying to, okay, so um, the idea then, it, so circling back, what does this have to do with the relationship between the two worlds uh, and, the, and sort of uh, the one world? Uh, I'm trying to get the connection. Between. Okay, when you've got the chieftain and the priest separate, you just know that the two different qualities belong into the same body. The body and mind are united. Persians don't allow them ever to be split. It's a monist worldview. You're one, body and mind together. It's just two different aspects of the same system. So in, that's exactly why in, in Zoroastrianism, the ultimate God is Ahura Mazda. That's two different aspects here. Ahura is being and Mazda is sense. So Mazda is actually your mind and Ahura is the body. But the, the Zoroastrians are adamant that they actually do worship the mind, but not without the body and never separate from the body. It's just that that's uniquely human. So that's why they call themselves Mazda Yasni, and that's exactly what the Zoroastrians call Buddhist Ahura Yasni. And they think of the Buddhist as a complementary religion to their own religion. It's just a focus. You can basically choose. Do you want to go into the phallic mode? Do you want to go forward? Do you want to create a futurology? Do you want to create a vision and a strategy towards the future where humanity should go? In Exodus, then you go into Zoroastrianism and you, and you immerse yourself in that experience. If you go into Buddhism, for example, then you isolate yourself, you go into a different mode, which is more matriarchal, but that mode can complement the other one. Yeah. We've had this conversation a lot, and, and I always say that the, the Vajrayana is, is, is a mixture of those two things. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And Dogshan certainly it's, is. It's, Dogshan uh, mixes uh, two intensely. Because Vajrayana, the, the Vajra is, is a phallic symbol. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cutting through um, and uh, so, so, so it, it combines the matriarchal and, and the patriarchal. So it later happens is we get the pop religions, the vulgar versions of this, and we got the 11 year old boy pharaohs and the 11 year old pillar saints during the axial age to declare new truths. And they've been completely mistake. For example, you've got a concept in Persian philosophy, which is like the goal of your life, which means wholeness. Everywhere has been translating to perfection. No, there was no Platonism here. It's not perfection, it's wholeness, just having lived a whole life. You got mm -hmm. another word in, in Persian philosophy, is ameritat, which should be translated as transcendence, meaning that which transcends you. So the day you die, and remember the Persians never built pyramids. They just throw the corpses out in the deserts, right? They don't build pyramids at all. When you die, you die, but your memory will be celebrated for the next 70 years at the moment of your death every year. It's called Polgasar in Persian culture. And that is the point. So you are basically passing on, by dying, you're passing on the world to the next generation. This is what the person meant with Ameritat, but every damn translation of Sorastan scripture has always translated Ameritat as immortality, which again is this Gnostic Platonist idea to me, okay? So it's, it's perfection, immortality, and infinity do not exist in Persian thinking. It will be unfathomable because they're not real. Mm -hmm. But later with the Gnostics, at least to the Persian, this is the per Persian perspective, with the Mastakites, 
you know, we, we should both the origin of Islam and socialism. And later with the Manichaeans that inspired Christianity greatly because through St. Augustine, that's a major influence on Christianity, which Christianity has always been torn with and, and struggled with. The Gnostics came along and said, it's a true world. We need a true world mythology and body and mind must not meet. And that is only because they want to make the mind superior to the body. So the body belongs to the evil world of the demiurge and, and the mind is clean and fine and fantastic. Mm -hmm. So let me make sure I'm understanding you correctly. You're proposing uh, that if we understood Persian philosophy and Zoroastrian religion, we would have an alternative framework for a continuous cosmos that might be more properly aligned with the scientific worldview. Because that's with, yeah. with process philosophy too. Maybe am I am I off there? Oh or, yes, or? and the Persians. Thought nothing but process. Everything was processed to the persons, but everything was processed even prior to Zoroaster. Zoroaster had a process philosophical worldview. Everything was about change. Another beautiful term in Persian philosophy is frasho kereti. Frasho kereti is what Zoroaster aspired to. It's an ever refreshing world of novelty. Mm -hmm. Could you think of a better term for creativity than that? That is the highest ideal in Zoroastrianism. So, so they pursue this. I think what I'm, the structure I'm building in a simplified way for the new book is to say we had two grown-up complex religions coming out of the Middle East called Zoroastrianism and Judaism. And then we unfortunately got two vulgar pop versions called Christianity and Islam. And maybe we should go back to the roots, actually, all the 4,000 years back and actually find out the richness of Middle Eastern culture. Mm-hmm. The Indians could do the same. Well, there's there's, there's the a billion Muslims. Islamic people and a billion Catholics, and <laughs> there's such a small amount of Zoroastrians, I think even less than, than Jews. Is, is there going to be a Zoroastrian renaissance? Or, 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 or Okay, can I tell you guys one thing, because you're Canadians and too influenced by America. Can you stop <laughs> thinking quantity? Okay. America is obsessed with quantity. Okay, the rest of the world tries to aspire for quality. It's the difference between art and mediocrity. Okay, so you can just go for the quality here because at the end of the day, we're not responsible for, you know, turning the world into Sorasta world and things like that at all. Sorastas don't care what religion you pick. It's, it's one of those religions that has the grace to not be missionary religion. So it's, it's just, it's just you're, inv you're invited to conversation that actually is way older than Christianity and Islam. And also to understand why those two religions became so successful, why they were widely spread, because they were just the easy pop versions. Basically, basically they promised direct access to God, which most people can't handle anyway. Just, just any working class mom would say, no, no, she, she wants her idols, she wants her saints, she wants somebody to talk to, she doesn't want to talk to God. The priests are supposed to talk to God. No, I've talked to the lesser gods. That's why Catholicism is probably much better off in the future than Protestantism, because Protestantism is a ridiculous idea that you could sit and talk directly to God and he would care about you directly. It's just preposterous, right? But for Zoroastrians, there's that division. We call it the barred absolute, you and I, Andrew. The separation between God and man, where the priests are supposed to keep that, that area, right? And, and that's why, you know, in Zoroastrianism, uh, you have folk religions in parallel. That's exactly why universal human rights were invented by the Persians. It, it wasn't an accident. It was invented because they totally accepted that the average normal, normal guy would go and practice a folk religion, and have any god or goddesses they wanted. They talked to the lesser gods. They have saints who are basically role models that they could mimic to create a good society. Whereas for the priesthood themselves, 
it was all about Ahura and Master. So, I mean, I've talked to other Zoroastrians, and they and they, and they don't talk the way I mean they don't talk the way you do, Alexander. I mean, to be fair, uh, and so um, what? What I mean, I'm asking you this as a friend and honestly, what's the relationship between your take on Zoroastrianism and the average Zoroastrian? Because it, it sounds oh, it sounds I, very different. Yeah, I've done interviews several times with Parsiana Magazine in India, and I've spent so much time in India with the Parsis, and I'm, I'm more or less a member of the community. I've done that for years. And uh, they've also created now a new open uh, uh, temple in, in, in Pune called Ashavahishta that I visited last year and met all the brothers. I'm really, really, really welcomed warmly by the community, and I was treated very gracefully when I approached with the Indians. I actually converted to the Iranian branch of the religion because the Iranian Sorastas left. You can't, you can't convert uh, uh, if you're a Parisi, right? They don't oh, allow you can conversion. now. You can now. They don't allow sir. conversion. No, you, they, you sir, parts of that community do exactly that. Okay. There's, a, there's a totally open discussion about it in India. And it's basically because the Parsis were so successful in India because they accepted to basically be treated as a major Hindu caste higher Hindu caste, which they've been allowed to be for the last 1,000 years because they would never convert any Hindus to their religion. But the Iranian branch of Zoroastrianism were, of course, relieved when they left Iran after the Khomeini's took takeover in the 1970s. So all the, all the teachers I had were essentially Iranian professors who arrived in the United States in the 1980s. And I went there and studied with them intensely. And I decided to go into the Vesta and go into the original scripture. And I was one of these reformers who basically taught the Zoroastrians, stop talking about religion as a precursor to Christianity and Islam. Zoroastrianism is Silk Root religion. It's closely connected to Buddhism and Taoism. That's how it should be read. And that has now become the mainstream version of Zoroastrianism within the community itself. I think we're going to see a major revolution of Iranian-American historians for the next 30 years and Chinese-American historians and Indian-American historians who basically going to take all the notions we had of Asia throw them in our face, say, this is all bullshit from the 19th century, romantic bullshit. We're going to rewrite the history of Asia properly and finally get that part of world history correct. Mm -hmm. And I see that fire already in them. There's so many of these students who are into that right now. So I think the Silk Road Triad, which was a term that I launched to read Zoroastrianism through the Eastern religious and not the Western ones, is much, much better. That's exactly why you see the similarities of Zoroastrianism and the reforms Zoroastrianism made with attempts to yoga state to maybe Brahmanism versus Hinduism in India. They're very similar. So what is the triad? The triad Zoroastrianism, Buddhism, and Taoism? Yeah, the Silk Road Triad. Because yeah. if you look at the Silk Road, there were all these big cities. There were like huge cities along the Silk Road. So you go to say the 13th century before the plague, right? Huge cities along the Silk Road. Every one of these cities had schools of thought where local, you know, pillar saints were sitting expressing the different schools. And it's just like language. You could go from one oasis to the next along the Silk Road and there's slightly different variations, but they're actually very, very similar. I discovered this when I, you know, went to Iran and walked into Zoroastrian temple the first time I discovered, my God, it looks exactly like a Zen rock garden in Japan. And like, how could you ever connect a religion with this kind of architecture, with this kind of fantastic simplicity, with anything coming out of Islam and Christianity? This is clearly related to Zen. And it turns out that, you know, the Dana in India, uh, the Daena in Iran is later than Shan in China. 
it's Xi'an in Vietnam, it's Seon in Korea, and it's Zen in Japan. These are just mm. teachings along the trade routes mm. where you're going to one monastery or one school of thought to the next and you practice and, and you work on yourself. And you probably after you've been to the whorehouse and done a dirty business deal, this is what you probably try to do, right? So this, this is fantastic. The rediscover the Silk Road is absolutely fundamental because Asia's history is not one of permanence and fixation. Asia's history is all about the fluidity of the trade routes. And that's how these religious must be understood. They were in constant conversation. The Kushtun Empire, when the Afghans invaded India, the Kushtun Empire lasted for about 400 years in India. And Zoroastrianism and Buddhism were the state religions of the Kushtun Empire. And there's not a single registered conflict between the two. Rather than we treat it the way you treat Shintoism and Buddhism in Japan, like complementary religion, one matriarchal religion, one phallic religion, for different purposes. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us, Alexander? I mean, I mean, I, I, this is this is fantastic history, and I want to know more about it. I'm just that's why I'm mostly silent because it's interesting and thought provoking. Okay. What does, okay. That, what, does that, what does that translate? And what, how, do, how does that connect with the work that I'm trying to do? Right? Okay, uh, it connects with Nietzsche and Heidegger and 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 you know the the reversal of Plato. So. I'm working in that mode. I am very much an anti-Platonist, realizing what a fantastic writer he was and what an amazing thinker he was. He was wrong. And, and that's precisely because out of that came this, the, the, Gnostic, the Gnostic separation of body and mind, which is completely inhumane. And I think, to, to be very honest about it, these pillar saints that suddenly appeared in the Axel Age and were spiritual teachers, often self-appointed masters, right? They are to me a very asexual beings, uh, and they, they like they have a boyish fantasy of the world. That's why they always refer to perfection, immortality, and infinity. These three lies that, that Gnosticism is full of, and and the Zoroastrians went after them. And I understand exactly why. I'm a radical monist, just like Nietzsche, just like Heidegger, and I'm a radical process thinker, like Hegel, also by the way. And I think we need to understand what these guys, what the Germans, try to do and get back to that, because the only way for East and West, and now also digital, to unite in some kind of narrative is to go back to radically modest worldview, where we just realize we have three different narratives to describe that world, but it's unified. Make sense? I think, well, I, I, it makes sense as a proposal. I mean, I'm trying to understand. Uh, uh, I agree with you that we should get, we should try to overcome notions of perfection and permanence and completion, especially with regards to our understanding of sacredness. And, uh, and Andrew will back me up on this. You, you, you should also know from my own work that I think um, I, I'm very much the pro I'm into universals of process rather than trying to get fixed conclusions, fixed products. That's very much how I'm thinking. But I tend to find a, 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 a richness in the, uh, the, the Platonic heritage. I mean, Neoplatonism does become a, become a profound kind of monism, um, Plotinus and the One. Um, and I find, a, I find value in Platonism as a discussion of the deep connection between intelligibility and realness, and a deep connection between right, beauty and truth are things that are dis discussed uh, very, very well in that tradition in a, in a very helpful manner. And we've lost that in our own current discourse. You know, you mentioned that you are also interested in the work of Han. I see Han 
and you know, in a lot of ways, he's he's bringing back this attempt to try and put truth and beauty and time and being into discussion with each other in a more profound way. And well, I disagree with Plato's conclusions. I like the way in which he is recognizing profound insights about us and about the way we want to, and I mean, Hegel is deeply platonic in this sense. The real is the rational, and the rational is the real. That's platonic through and through. That's the claim that realness and intelligibility have some kind of profound identity. And so I agree there's, there's discontinuity between Hegel and Plato, and that Hegel is moving in a process manner, but I also see deep platonic elements in Hegel. I see deep platonic elements in, in Nietzsche too, and Nietzsche, Nietzsche knows this. He says, you know, I hate Socrates. He's so close to me. I'm always fighting him, right? He knows that he's in, yeah. uh, right? And this was part of Heidegger's critique of Nietzsche, in fact, that he's still, all he's doing is taking the platonic worldview and simply inverting it. He's not breaking through it. And so, I mean, I, I'm appreciating, I hope you understand that, Alexander. I'm appreciating everything you, you say, but I think rather than being anti-platonic, I think uh, I, I, want to, I want to put what you're saying into a deep discord, discourse and dialogue, sorry for the pun, uh, with Plato, uh, precisely because I see these connections. I don't want to lose all the insights that were gathered from that as well. No, no, I agree completely. And you just mentioned it. The key word there is Neoplatonism. Yeah. And how would you define, just to the, the people who follow us tonight, uh, how would you define the difference between Platonism and Neoplatonism? So, well, I mean, there's both a historical way of defining it and a structural. If you'll allow me a bit of time, I'll try and do a little bit of both, if that's okay. Please like, do. We'd love you to teach us. So, well, um, so there's the historical sense in that uh, Neoplatonism is basically an attempt to integrate Plato, Aristotle, and Stoicism into a more comprehensive uh, uh, and unified framework. And what that means structurally is a more, uh, is a deepening of the Socratic practice of self-examination and self-reflection into a process that comes to an explicit acknowledgement of the importance of non-propositional knowing. So that ultimately um, acts of what I would call perspectival transformation and participatory knowing become much more central. But they never become divorced from propositional argumentation. So the thing you see in Plotinus is this wonder, wonderful integration. So the dialectic goes from being sort of between people. To in Plotinus, you have argumentation and a spiritual exercise in which you are undergoing a transformation of consciousness, and they are wedded together because it is seen that on their own they are, they are inadequate. But when sewing together, only that will give you the appropriate integration of the love of truth and the love of beauty that will take you to what has always been at the heart of reason, motivating reason, but is ultimately beyond reason. And that's the, the central move in Neoplatonism. And, and, and then the idea is that whatever it is that is ultimate and it's the source of intelligibility, the source of normativity, it has to be that which is beyond even the distinction between truth, goodness, and beauty, the distinction between subject and object. It can have no other because all intelligibility comes from it. It, it. In fact, Plotinus even says it's beyond being, because even our notions of being uh, right, involve uh, a, 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 some kind of implicit dualism. 
Um, and so for me, again, I reject a lot of Neoplatonism, by the way, all right? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of it that doesn't fit with what we're talking about or what I think is relevant. But if you'll allow me, the process and the grammar of Neoplatonism, I, I think have something deeply right in them about this idea about how can we knit together all the kinds of knowing and how can we knit together uh, the interpersonal dialectic and the intra-ontological dialectic so that people can experience a profound kind of transformation of transcendence and so that the, the deep connections between intelligibility and being and transformation are explicated and made available to people as practices, not just as ideas. That, for me, is the central... I want to keep that grammar. I think that grammar is important and valuable. And don't forget that Plotinus enters into a long, long critique with the Gnostics because he sees the he sees the I mean, he's got a he's got he's got a treatise against because he sees the Gnostics as having a kind of similarity to what he's doing, but actually also a deep difference. And he's very he takes great pains to try and separate what he's doing uh, from Gnosticism, explicitly so, in fact. Okay, I, we use Platonus in our work, Sedekist and I, because we were looking at Jacques Lacan's model of psychoanalysis, which yeah. is like there's drive and there's desire. So desire yeah. is the symbolic. So from language, you know, we, we create objects and things, but drive is just the incessant drive. But I, I found that kind of poor. And, and to begin with, Lacan ignores instinct. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of our behavior is instinctual, which we call animalistic behavior. Uh, on top of that, we can have drive, which is like a mechanistic behavior. We can then have desire, which is symbolic behavior. But we also added transcendence as a drive. Of course. Because it's clearly in human beings. You cannot put transcendence the, 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 mm. for the above, for, for the higher, for, for, for whatever we could, you know. But, but you also, what we do then is we try to trace that back into history because in the original nomadology, when everything is the return of the same, you don't really have that concept. And I trace that again back to Zoroaster and see it then explode through Heraclitus and Plotinus because it is with Zoroaster you discover that while the daughter is still just copying the mother because she is a force of nature, she gives birth to children, it's just a natural process. The son suddenly realizes that he doesn't have to mimic the father completely. He can actually make the word slightly different than the father. And that is only because Orastes realized the power of written language. That's exactly why he comes at 1700 before Christ, right? So the, what, what, you, what you realize, if you accumulate information outside of your own mind, Start accumulating information. You can start figuring out it's going to change the world. Now, right. that doesn't mean everything is going to turn, turn to the same any longer. An event has just happened. Something has arrived in history that will change history forever. And this is what Zoroaster plays around with because he puts the mm. nomads against the settled. And without moralism, he argues for the settled rather than nomads by saying the settled are actually investing in their future, meaning the sons can create a world that's better than the fathers. I, I have a thought here. Can I interject? Yeah. It's just the first time bit? in history you see that happening. That, that, that thought has never happened before Zoroaster. Mm -hmm. well, and, and there's also a sense, I mean, my understanding is there's a fundamental sense in the sense of time. Because if you move from the eternal return to the same, to the possibility that the future can be different, I mean, that, that's a fundamental reorientation towards time, and then that means ultimately a fundamental reorientation towards being, and also intelligibility and how we make sense of things. I mean, that's a 
that's a fundamental change, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that's why our book is called Process and Event. And we're basically discussing the two different religions of all religions, which are nomadology and eventology. And eventology arises with the phallic. Let's talk about the phallus. It arises with the fantasy, for you know, for good or bad. It arises with the fantasy the persons first explored, that the father, the sons, the sons' empire can be different from the father's. It can be, a, it can be not only renewed, but it can also be improved. And this is where I think transcendence kicks in. Transcendence has been sort of dormant in human beings long before that, because when you got hunt, you want to hunt more than you did the day before. There can be improvements in your performance. You get older, you get wiser. So there's certainly ideas of transcendence, sort of microscopic forms of transcendence, but suddenly this idea explodes. Now, the question is, though, once transcendence and ideas come to the forefront, which is the rise of the eventology, and of course, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all eventological religions. They, then we have to rewrite eventology today in, 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 a, in a more factual way to understand eventology today. To, to me, that is rewriting history as if the only change that ever happened was technological and we so, humans haven't changed at all. So I wanted to bring Rennie Girard into the conversation uh, here because uh, you're talking about the um, eventology being the beginning of a sort of recorded time which is when the Hebrew Bible comes in and when, and when the idea of the scapegoat you know, according to Girard, gets 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 um, comes into into uh, the idea that um, that it's not you know we move from mythology right into eventology in, in a sense right we move into like historical truth. Um, well, the, the West did, but the East did not. So mm-hmm. uh, because Perhaps. the Chinese. I have I've had all these podcasts this, this spring with all these Indian amazing thinkers and artists and everything. And they always talk about India. It's just circular time. We're circular time. This whole idea of linear time is a very Western thing to us. But the thought I had was that maybe, maybe the, 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 uh, the revelation of the scapegoat arises at the same time as well, the revelation the, the, of written Rene language. Rene Girard does not discuss anything prior to Christianity. He doesn't even dig into the origin of Judaism. Oh, no, that's not true. That's okay. Really well, no, true. but he doesn't go in all the way down to Zoroastrianism, which you should do. I mean, obviously, influenced Christian, early Christianity enormously. Mm. But the idea that the, we can have one scapegoat once and for all on a cross, so we won't have any scapegoats any longer, which is Rene Girard's fundamental interpretation of the contribution of Christianity. That idea can only occur if you first have an idea that you can live in an ontology, and that uh, one man's act can change history forever. And this is fundamental to Christianity. Yeah, the, the notion of the kairos and the notion of the incarnation are, yes. are separately bound up together. But what I, what I what, but I think let, let me let me let me try and bring this around what I was trying to say. I see what you're saying in terms of the the if you'll allow me these uh, uh, these metaphors. I see the horizontal progression through time that you're talking about here. But what I see what the what the Greeks still gave us was a recognition of another progression which is a vertical progression between levels of ontology. And that's what Plotinus, to me, is bringing out in a very, very powerful way. Now, I think the Greek obsession with this to the neglect of this is a mistake. But I think if we just talk about the horizontal movement through time without also talking about the vertical movement through levels of ontology, that's also a mistake. We need some way to talk about the two of them together in an integrated fashion. Can you explain what Plotinus means with that, with the vertical... So what Plotinus means by the vertical ontology, so every, there, is a, there is a motion, but it, it, and 
there's a sense in which you could see it as a as I don't want it to be mistaken for the eternal return of the same, but it's the idea that there is you start with the one and then it emanates into so there's a progression that there's an overflow into the different principles that then overflow into each principle uh, you know grounds multiple patterns and then those patterns flow into multiple events and things but those events and things are only real to the degree to which they integrate and then so there's a progression right of emanation and then there's a return of emergence and so we, we even think about this in our scientific language where we talk about you know the higher orders emerging up from the quantum but also the things emanating down from the cosmological relativistic scale and so this isn't a movement through time it's a movement between levels of being and it is also important for understanding the connection between intelligibility transformation transcendence and being and so I think Plotinus is a master of this I think he has nothing of value to say about the horizontal and so I am, I'm acknowledging that but I think talking about just the horizontal right without talking about about and I mean and I'm using horizontal to mean historical in the profound way you're talking about it Alexander okay and I don't mean it in any trivial sense I mean it in a you know a deeply Hegelian Nietzschean sense of historical I get that but and I think the part that I see Nietzsche hungering for and not being able to articulate and he's trying to get it with the ubermensch and that man is something that must be overcome and what have you done to overcome him he's trying to get this as well and he doesn't know how to do it precisely because he has oh, so strongly rejected the platonic tradition not without reason by the way but he has so strongly rejected it that he has he has emasculated himself with from any language that will allow him to talk even within a monistic framework of the le of the relationship between the levels of being and so that's what i want to i want to bring together mm. i i agree with what you're talking about i think it's important i mean mm. no no important sorry i was about to be too pretentious i would predict <laughs> that no important process thinker doesn't take seriously the deep interconnections between being, time, intelligibility, process, event, kairos, of course, right? That, that's, that's the difference between history as a narrative and science as a nomological. But the nomological is nevertheless real. The relationship between the levels of reality is also a deep affordance of human transcendence and transformation. And so I want the vertical integrated with the horizontal. Yeah, what we're doing with my students is they're working on an emergence vector theory. Oh, and, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Sounds cool. and, and the whole field is going to be called transcendental emergentism. <laughs> and it finally... Sorry, it, I just want to appreciate that. That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, these students are so clever. I mean, this, this guy, Alexander Vrede Elung, he's 27 years old from Denmark. He's a fucking genius. And I warned him and told him, you'd probably be in a madhouse five years from now because you're that smart. You know, we try to keep you sane because then I can just work with you. He's wonderful. So we're working on towards this transcendental emergentism. It's basically to get out of this uh, idea that either the psyche in one end has to go all the way back to the very bottom 
or at the very bottom there's a kind of a you know original atom that then it's just goes all the way up to the top yeah, yeah. because yeah. both these like, reductionisms they just reverse reductionisms they're both yeah, wrong yeah. so we can finally study physics separately from biology study separately from chemistry study separately from mind you you just you choose to find different emergences that have happened in history space time occurred right after the big bounce by the way which is fascinating uh, and, 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 and when these things happen somewhere along this sort they're events again eventology and then suddenly there's a whole new set of rules for that specific field you can call them laws of nature or just habits of nature if you like so you can study them separately without having one of them as being primary to get out of this idea that either physics is prime. By the way, I'm going to kill the primacy of physics by having a sub-physics prior to it, because that's where mathematics gets stuck at the moment. So we're working on a really weird, wide-headed idea of something that's prior to all relations. Okay? Oh. It's, it's spooky. It's spooky like that. But Whitehead, Whitehead told us it would be spooky once we got there, right? But physics has to go, they has to get out of physics and move into sub-physics. And that's great because you get rid of the primacies. We don't want the primacies here. We want to solidly be able to study these different pockets that we call yeah. emergence vectors. Okay, so now now this, this is great. I'm glad to hear this because this now allows me to make a more sort of precise version of the question I want to make. Because I've been reading uh, somebody, I've been reading Erigena, you know, it's called the ninth century Hegel, because he basically took that Neoplatonic idea really deeply. And he tried to, I mean, because what I see happening right now in the West, and I, I can't pronounce as widely as you can, but I see this competition between bottom-up emergence, which is sort of, you know, broadly called a naturalistic worldview, and then, you know, often very decadent forms of Neoplatonism with some kind of emanation uh, metaphysics. And what Erigena said is, no, no, they, they are absolutely interdependent, interaffording, and trying to make one primary over the other. And he basically argued that reality was ultimately dialectic in nature for, for precisely that reason. But it's not a Hegelian dialectic this way. It's a dialectic this way. And that's why I'm so fascinated by his work. Hmm. Now, that allows me to formulate my question to you. Because I think we're in agreement about monism, and I think we're in agreement about what we've just been talking about. So, I, I, I hope that the question doesn't come off as too simplistic, because I think where we've got to, I want to feel it, I want, I'm asking you to feel it impregnating the question. How do we separate the metaphysics, if you'll allow me that, of monism from the epistemology of reductionism? Because typically, and I see this in so many thinkers, the way they try to argue for monism, right, is they try to give a privilege to one of these directions over the other. So you're nodding so you understand my question. So oh, yeah. I, I, would go, I would go to Spinoza right away and just say... Oh, that's one, where I go to, yeah. That's one substance and an infinite amount. Not infinite. That we shouldn't use the word infinite. Enormous amount of attributes. And basically what I'm saying here, again, it, we would go to the narratives that I'm working with. I, I, you know, I'm going to stay with the Protestant event for the book, otherwise it gets too thick, right? Okay. But uh, when I look at the, the narratives, I'm also explaining the pathos and mythos and logos, none of them is primary. You've got to understand that none of them is primary. We need all three. We are all three. And it's okay. specifically now when the machine and artificial intelligence is coming along, because what I'm essentially doing as philosophers, I'm preparing us humans to have a machine that will ask us some 30 years from now, who are you? 
<laughs> That's why I worked with technology 30 years ago. I'm only working with humanity now because I'm basically technology will probably sort itself out. It will take over the world and it will do logos perfectly. Where, you know, in the Heraclitian sense, logos. But that means uh, pathos is what will be human. Machines cannot crack jokes. Machines don't fuck. Machines don't kill each other, at least not yet. So a lot of the stuff that we humans do, the bizarre things, is certainly machines do not make art. If you try to program a computer to make art, it's like eerie mimicking. It's just not art. It's nothing transformative at all. It's just banal, right? So these things are exactly what we humans should tell the machines. We do pathos for good or bad, but we, that's what we do. That's what humanity is. Because now if you're taking over logos and performing better than we do, and you can do that to save us, to save the planet and to save us from killing each other and to lock up the atomic bombs and whatever we need to do. I think all those things are things the machine, machinic intelligence can do. But machinic intelligence cannot even crack a joke and it cannot smell the coffee. Where does mythos, mythos fit in, in there? Where's mythos? Is okay. Because like, you have a story, you need a story, right? To, to yes. In the pathos, okay. don't, don't you? Um, okay, take Emiko Christ and the brain house. Essentially, one brain half is logos and the other brain half is pathos. But for logos and pathos to somehow agree on a self and a world and a shared worldview, they create mythos. Mythos is always the story of how you connect the others. And that's why it's, it's just as important as the other two. Just like the matriarch unifies the chieftain and the priest. They're nothing without the matriarch. They're actually ultimately responsible to the matriarch because without her, they're not going to fuck the girls and they will not have an inheritance. So it, it's, again, triads. At least works for me. Okay. Well, I, 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 um, I don't know. You, 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 <laughs> this is always the case with you, Alexander. You say, you say things that are loaded with so many paths that I want to, and so I, I always have a moment where I, I, I have to decide or choose which path I want to try and resonate with you. Uh, let, let's try the, the, the I mean, I, I had a wonderful conversation with Ian. I, I don't know if you got to see it. Um, um, uh, on uh, Ian McGilchrist, who you refer to. Mm -hmm. On, on hemispheric differentiation and integration. And I come at it uh, from a cognitive perspective of that um, insight is actually the process uh, in which activation shifts between the left and right hemispheres. And uh, you can make a good argument for that, which Ian uh, said he, 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 he approved of. He thought it was very consonant with his work um, that the left hemisphere is dealing with well-defined problems and the right hemisphere is dealing with ill-defined problems. The left hemisphere mm -hmm. Um, it is dealing with basically uh, where you're in situations uh, that you're trying to obtain things using your skills and your habits, and the right hemisphere evolved originally to deal with unexpected things like predation. The um, known and the unknown, basically. Well, 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 well the familiar and the unfamiliar, the well-defined mm -hmm. and the ill-defined. Yeah. And so it's different, it, and, and the idea is evolution puts different pressures on you in those different contexts. In well-defined context, you will outcompete me if you can not notice differences of detail, if you can go more methodically, if you can right, if you can deal with the error that is caused by uh, doing things out of neglect or not not pursuing certainty. So the left hemisphere goes for clarity. It doesn't like ambiguity. It likes to do things step by step. It likes formulas. The right hemisphere is for predation, where you're going to outcompete me there if you don't care about things being absolutely clear. If you can grab the whole all at once, if you can like make sense on the fly, if you are not pursuing certainty, and if you're so, much so, 
Again, Logos being the left brain is 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 the the See, Russian. That's what I want to challenge. That's what, see, that's what I want to challenge. Okay. I, okay. I see, I see Logos, the way, especially the way Heraclitus understands it. I mean, don't listen to my words, but listen to the Logos within them, right? And, and the psyche has a Logos that always surpasses itself. There is something inherently, and Heidegger picks up on this when he talks about the, the, the etymology of Logos is not originally speech, but it's, it's to gather things together so that they come to belong together. It's that gestalting. Yeah. Yeah, there's a confusion about how, how you guys both define logos, I think, here. Okay, can I, can I, again, can I add another take? Yeah. Uh, if you take a Freudian perspective, this is the controllable and the uncontrollable. So that's exactly why sexuality is so central to Freud, because it's clearly, it's, it's, we're obsessed with it, and it has no harmony and no balance at all. It's just so, okay. out all the time. And okay. that's exactly why that's pathic. And of course, then a machine that does zeros and ones cannot even grasp that. We that will still be left to us to do it. But this, of course, where art comes into the picture. That's exactly why you can never tell art that it has to be good for society, anything like that at all. Art is just causing havoc and wrecking, very shamanic, and but it is truly transformative. If you go through a deep artistic experience, you come out of it like shocked that you're different. An event happened. You're different. And that's why I place those in pathos. I'm not sure you're probably a better brain scientist than me, John, so don't take it too literally. <laughs> but at least I'm allowing people to understand that if you think of the, the narratives, like pathos will never be clear. Pathos will always be confused and messy, at best artistic, and very, very fluid and you know, hard to interpret. Whereas logos is basically mathematics, you know, zeros and ones. And, and then mythos yeah. is exactly that story that connects you. You call that insight, and I agree with you. I would just, in its sort of 10,000 year perspective, narrative here is history. I would call that mythos. I would call the fundamental mythos. Okay, That's so how you explain the insight. If I have an insight, I want to explain it to you. I would have a mythical narrative to explain it. Because logical narrative would be too cheap and pathical narrative would be too confusing. Okay. So I guess what, I guess what I'm resisting uh, and what's important to me is I think one of the problems we've fallen into and I think, right, and I, think I, I, can, I can call Heidegger as uh, an ally in this, is the reduction of Logos to logic. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm critical of the identification of Logos with logic. I think that's a mistake. I think that's, that's a mistake. And so, yeah, I agree completely. And going back to Zoroaster again, Asha, which is prior to Logos, Persian Asha, means how things work. But Asha yeah. is also an ethical principle. Then it becomes Asha Vahishta. Just as like, if you build on how things work, you can suddenly make the world better. Well, it, this sounds a lot similar to the way um, Dharma works in, in Sanskrit yeah. philosophy. Dharma yeah. can mean speech. Yeah. So Logos is way more than logic or mathematics, yeah. Yes. But to students, maybe I'm just rushing here a bit and creating a shortcut, but to students at least, you know, when we think of what the machine will do if it arrives and it is the Messiah um, and save us, then we will certainly put the name Logos on what well, the machine well, jo Jordan Peterson's notion was that Logos is the, is the, the order uh, that comes from chaos, the sacred order that comes from chaos in, in some way. Yeah. So Jordan's view is, I think, like mine, and I, I got to talk to Jordan before he became a god. Um, and... and uh, <laughs> uh, and um, there was a lot of, because I mean, he and I both see logos and we both independently were using it in our lectures. And that actually came up in our, in that public debate we had. Um, we both see it more, I think of logos as much closer to what I talk about when I talk about relevance realization. 
and that's what I see inside. I think that Logos mm -hmm. is much more like that. That's certainly um, very similar to how Heidegger and then through Heidegger Dreyfus is talking about the process of sense making it not the way it's being used right now in general, but yeah. the, the, the the way in which it's originally <laughs> connected, right? I'm laughing at our phallic yard here. This is the very male fantasy that Logos makes exactly that. I think if a woman entered the room, she would she would claim, no, you've got to add mythos to actually understand the world in that sense. I, I, don't, I, I don't deny that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not making an argument for the, um, the, the, the completeness of Logos or its self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. I, I do not want to make that argument. Andrew knows that I don't want to make that argument. I could, I, he can wit witness to the fact that I think that uh, there has to be a there has to be a relation, for example, between what I'm calling logos and mythopoetic thought. And Zach and I have talked a lot about this too. So, and Alexander, I'm not making that argument. I, yeah, I okay. want to make sure I'm not making. Now, that. I would agree with you and say what I take in from this conversation into the book I'm writing is that I have to really describe both mythos and logos and pathos as rich and huge areas yeah. of thought. Yeah. Well, I guess I should avoid simplicities, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Agree. But I guess there's a point here that Logos, if it's cut off from mythos, becomes kind of an autistic type of expression. It's not embodied or something like that. Um, it becomes purely spiritual, maybe, or... or um, um, yeah, it's hard to say because, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm out of my league here. In, in I would say, so I would say the chaos there. is pathos. And the order is logos, but to explain logos to any kind of audience, you would need mythos. That's how I would look at it. And maybe that a work sense. of art would have to have all three of those elements in it to 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 be a complete work of art. Right? It would have to have a, a logo. It'd have to have a you know. There'd also have to be a container, a story. Uh, I am a great defender, as Camille Pagla would be, uh, of keeping art within pathos and not try to make mythos an art form because I don't think a Netflix series is art. But I also don't think that logical operations or any extended personal logos necessarily is art. I would, mm. Rachel Hayward would probably agree with me that art has to stay in the dark and in the passions and be unexplainable. Don't ever try to okay. turn art into something good, right? But that sounds like that sounds to me like you would then be excluding poesis and poetry from art. And that seems to me problematic. Uh, because, I mean, uh, you know, there's a clear understanding that poesis is also, like, uh, is also deeply involved with logos, especially the way I'm trying to explain logos. And that poesis and logos are deeply bound up together. This is oh, also oh, okay. This is where I differentiate between poesis and philosophy. Okay. Philosophy but, is the attempt to, 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 to become and, and, and incarnate logos, whereas I put poetry in the pathic realm. Well, you said, uh, Alexander, that an art form transforms you in some kind of a way. For me, like, that has to be, I don't know, is that... That ha that has doesn't that have to be bound up with 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 something more than just you know sensual experience or doesn't have to be have another dimension transformative to it? in the sense that it's uh -huh. just changed. I'm thinking Deleuze here, just change. You're yeah. just different. You might be minor or, or shocked or shell shocked and whatever when you come out of that experience. An artist does not take any responsibility for how you're going to perceive the art, not at all, definitely not. So I would say that education is transformative, but it has a clear 
lineage. It's that you're supposed to get smarter and wiser the more you get educated. But that's not the case at all. Art is not education. Art is just transformative in itself. The trickster is an artist. I mean, you throw something into the machine and you don't take responsibility for it, but it's artistic. But I mean, again, uh, this is where I'm struggling because I see poesis, and again, uh, you know, uh, clearly, again, there's connections to Heidegger, there's connections to uh, a, a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, that uh, poesis is actually bringing things into intelligibility. Poesis originally means making. Oh, okay. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah, I think I this is the crux, if I if I may say so, of your disagreement or, or no, something. no, there's no disagreement at all. Or not I maybe call, disagreement, but but. Andrew, uh, I'll, I'll explain. Okay. In my work, I call it pathopoesis, and I call it mythopoesis, and I call it logopoesis. Poesis. So yes, I agree with that description. Now I get it. Yeah, Heidegger. Yeah. Okay. I thought poetry here, not poesis. <laughs> right. Right. All right. So, so what are you resisting, uh, to, to, uh, John? What's, what's, where's your resistance here? Uh, my resistance it, uh, was that I, well, I was seeing art, I was thinking of poetry as, a, as an essential form. Because poesis originally didn't mean just what we call poetry. It was extended to mean a lot of what we call, call art today. So I don't think I'm doing something that's ahistorical. I think I'm actually making reference to something. And Alexander's nodding, so I think he agrees with that. Yeah. Yeah, at least the etymological history. And I see poesis as very much like insight. It's basically making sense. It's generating new ways of thinking. It's, it, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really wanting to, like, making sense, not just in the everyday sense, but making new ways of making sense possible to us. I think that is one of the prime, and I see that as part of what I would typically call logos, uh, because that's again, uh, Heraclitus sees it as the thing that is made. But we usually sense. think of logos as language, right? Whereas in, in poet, poetry goes beyond language. There's dance. There's 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 even in our English words, it doesn't stand for just language. Ontology. The logos of the ontos, that doesn't, I mean, when I'm talking ontologically, right, uh -huh, I'm actually yeah. trying to talk about the structures of being, okay. uh, the fact, right, uh, and, and, and the intelligent, it, that's why we sometimes translate it not by speech, we translate it also poorly, but a little bit better than speech, with study, because study is supposed to be this uh, idea of conforming, like, to the intelligibility, to the structures therein, submitting yourself to the real patterns that you're finding, that's what you're doing when you're doing archaeology, right? And so I think logos, again, has a much more comprehensive notion. And the real reason why I, this is important to me is because I, I well, I want to extend, and Andrew, I've made this uh, uh, argument to you, and I want to hear what Alexander has to say, right? I, I, I want to rescue wisdom and rationality from the clutches of logical reduction, and I want to return them to the projects of overcoming self-deception affording new intelligibility, affording self-transcendence. I want the connections between reason and wisdom to be brought back into the fore. And that, again, that to me is the platonic heritage because we have tended to turn reason into something, well, to use Alexander's term, mechanical and logical, computational. But if you look in Plato, the direction is the other way. Reason is supposed to take us into wisdom, self-transcendence, noose, the ultimate uh -huh. insight, it's not supposed to result in okay. mathematical computation. 
That, that's so what, the difference, that's what, can I say something here? I, I, for what I'm hearing from Alexander is, is you're describing artists beyond good and evil in, in some sense, right? Beyond, yeah. beyond uh, and, and I'm saying, I think John is trying to rescue, uh, John is saying that, that art has some kind of, uh, you know, movement towards wisdom and, and all these, you know, yeah, that's where I disagree. Uh, is, that, is, is, that, is that, am I correct in understanding yeah, your disagreement here, John? Let me respond to Andrew yeah. first, Alexander, because he's, 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 he's claiming to represent me and I want to make sure that... I'm well, excuse, I, I'm sorry. No, I, no, I, no, I, no, no, we're, no, come on, we're friends. I'm just okay. saying I want to make sure you asked me and I want to answer it if you've understood me. Okay. I'm not claiming, I'm not claiming that all art is that. I'm claiming that there seems to be uh, an important branch and that's the point of the etymological argument of art, the poesis, that is what I'm talking about. That, okay. that, 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 that part of wisdom is to realize in the deep sense what hasn't been realized or seen before. And that is what poesis affords us to do. It allows us to see things and realize patterns we couldn't see before. That's the making. And I think that's a central, that's why some of the, that's why so much wisdom literature is written poetically and it's not written propositionally. Like, I, I, but I agree. I agree. That's that's okay. why I talk about the three narratives. Uh, so you, you can't be wise without the three narratives and understanding the world from the three narratives. You can't just have one of them. That's just idiotic. You have to have all three. And they're not harmonious in between each other to keep you in like constantly questioning everything, which is, of course, when creativity yeah. starts. So I agree on that. The, the, the only thing is that, to me, we, we, we have to go back to what I'm lacking in Nietzsche is that he doesn't have a split in the, in the Dionysian. And this is where this idea that Andrew proposed that I want to have art beyond good and evil, because I think it gets banal if it isn't beyond good and evil. Uh, it, it's, it's more like raw material or something in the human soul rather than it's, it's a completion of anything. It shakes us up. But the Dionysian, I, I don't find in Nietzsche that Nietzsche separates the Dionysian. So if you say Tantra and Sutra, for example, there has to be a difference here. So the Dionysian lynch mob, which we're experiencing today these days. Like, it's just idiotic and really dangerous in history because Dionysian lynch mob is basically mimicking, 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 scared like hell running through the streets and trying to find a scapegoat to kill. But the other Dionysian is the crazy wisdom aspect of the Dionysian. Oh, yeah. That's when it gets uh -huh. really interesting. Yeah. That's and the shaman they, as well, right? That's yeah, this is where shamans and artists go for inspiration. Mm -hmm. And what they do, they make all these connotations and stuff and take psychedelics and stuff and come back and nine ideas out of ten are just terribly bad but the tenth one is just wow we've never seen the world through that perspective before and okay. that is transformative art and i i don't know any artist today and i know tons of them and i don't know any artist today who, who would like to have art prior to good and evil again it's just like we are beyond good and evil and certainly art in the east certainly was always beyond good and evil Okay, so, so let's do the shaman, because right? I, I think I get a better understanding of what you're talking about. And, 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 you know, of course, and originally, of course, shaman means to see, right? Knowing by seeing. Um, so, uh, and, 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 you know, and wizards and wise ones are, are, you know, the heritage is in shamanism. And so what I think I hear you saying is, I talk about this, and this is also in the cognitive science of insight. You need disruptive strategies, right, in order to have an insight. You need something you like, um, you have to, like, what psychedelics do is they basically throw uh, cybernetic noise into the brain and that disrupts patterns and allows new patterns to emerge, which I think is uh, one way of understanding the Dionysian. And, um, and you, of course, shamans use, of course, psychedelics 
they use all kinds of disruptive strategies, sleep deprivation, sex deprivation, solitude, etc., in order to do this. Um, and I could, you can do it even in a much more mundane fashion. I give you a, an insight problem you're trying to solve on a computer screen, and you can't solve it, and then I throw some static into the screen and make it jiggle around, and then you'll have an insight, because you have to break frame in order to make frame. If, if, that, if that's what you're talking about as pathos, the disruptive strategy that is outside of the frame, because it can't be disruptive if it's inside the frame, is that what you mean by beyond good and evil? That it's something outside of our framing that disrupts our framing, but affords a reframing, a transframing of some kind. Am I? Oh yeah, it, it it is the natural event. For example, it's just that you're happy, everything is fine, and a thunderbolt hits your head and you're dead. <laughs> Book a job, like that, that, that's 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 what pathos occurs. Pathos in Lacan. Uh, pathos is, is, we're basically living in fantasies according to Lacan, yeah, and then yeah. suddenly the real happens. Yes. September like, 11, coronavirus. Yeah. Something yeah. happens collectively, like collectively. And suddenly our fantasies, we shocked out of the fantasy, we suddenly have to redefine the world, and, and we realize it's chaos and there's no order to it. So the order was like illusionary. The, the order is always illusionary. It's like chaos beneath order and the chaos can break through at any given time. And we were reminded of that constantly. This is pathos. But this is also means when I take pathos into the narrative, I mean, that's the nature inside of us. You know, the demons we carry around, the shadows that's we true. carry around, sure. all that. And yeah. it suddenly breaks through. It's just like, oh, oh, oh I, I should love that girl, but suddenly I'm horny for that girl and I'm not interested in her longer. Oh my God, I made a promise to her and she's beautiful. Why, do, why am I attracted to that girl? It's just, this is pathos all the time. And it constantly wrecks our fantasies about how we can control the world. And of course, this is where art starts. This is where art thrives. Art wants to be that shock to the system that forces us to re-fantasize the world. Slavo Zizek's best book is The Parallax View and he writes extensively about this from Lacan. And, 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 and uh, I think it's a great term, Parallax. Parallax Academy we've got here with Tom and Andrew. And, and, and pa Parallax, basically, you're looking at the same thing but from a completely different perspective. It's like, it's like, say you go to a place and you experience it and you love that place. And suddenly you meet somebody you love and you want to go back to that place to see that place again with that person because you want to sort of sense how that person sees yeah, that exactly. way. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that. Parallaxes, right? Yeah, how other people's perspectives are that kind of frame disruption for our, our perspective. I get that's that. Exa that's exactly why shamanic and creative people will jump to this instantly. They're not afraid of that at all. Just like, oh, could I see the world differently than that? Can I take a drug to do that or whatever? If I could just have a different perspective than the one I'm used to, I can then have the, okay, I could see the world this way. All right, that's interesting, right? You make art out of it. So uh, there's so two things that come out of that. Uh, one is you should uh, I should share with you that this strategy of introducing uh, disruption into processing so that it has to uh, restructure itself spontaneously is becoming integral to current AI work. I yes. mean that, that and I mean I've, I've lectured on this. So I, 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 so there's a sense in which. Um, the, 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 insofar as we're trying to make artificial general intelligence, if, if you'll allow me to use your, your terminology, uh, we're incorporating quite a bit of pathos into our attempts to get machines uh, to, capable of logos. Um, and um, I, I think that's, that's, rare, that's very telling. I think it lends strength to your argument, uh, but I don't know what that means for uh, your, uh, your, your understanding of 
the future of AI. So I put that out there for you that we could enter into dialogue. Yeah, like that. You, you're just making it even harder for me to defend humanity against the machines, <laughs> which I love. I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, if you take the thought all the way through, and you take Harvard uh, Tatna Tat seriously as a Zoroastrian, which means that you, you got to have a date when you hold and you complete it, and, and then you pass on, you die. That could be humanity itself. I'm not the, I, I've discussed it with Donald Schwachtenberger, and he says, like, yeah, I defend life at all times. And I said, I don't think I do. I think I defend intelligence with transcendence. Intelligence with transcendence doesn't necessarily include life. So uh, we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Maybe well, the machines shouldn't read my books. I don't know. Well, well maybe not. But, I, I, but there might be a way of bringing it back in. Um, this is a longer argument, so I'll only gesture towards it. I think there's the work I've done, the work that Evan Thompson and other people have done. I think there's deep continuity between the principles of cognition and the principles of biology. I, I don't think you're going to get artificial general intelligence that isn't embodied in artificial life in some fashion. I think that's also a mistaken project. So maybe there is uh, still a kind of hope for, uh, for what you're proposing. Uh, but I also agree with you that if we create, uh, this is a bit tongue in cheek, if we, if we create, uh, if we have the capacity for creating Silicon sages that surpass us, well, so be it. There's no moral argument against doing that. Um, um, so. and, I, and I kind of like how the Platonists in Silicon Valley want to be uploaded these days. Have no idea what a kind of infinite hell they're going to go into when they get Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, that's such a mistake. Yeah, no, like, you won't have a dick to begin with and not a brain, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I want to come back to, you know, again, uh, uh, what you were saying about uh, the pathos there. Because I thought of Goethe. Um, and why I bring Goethe up, uh, because you talk about the shamanic, um, and Goethe, of course, is very, I mean, his whole new way of seeing was an attempt to integrate that sort of provocation of insight and the shamanic back into Logos, the whole work that he's doing, you know, criticizing Newton's color theory, his work on, you know, the, the, the herb plant, right? Uh, and what's interesting about that is, you know, when Nietzsche, Nietzsche offers very few actual examples of the Ubermensch, but he clearly pronounces uh, Goethe as an example of the interim. Do you know what Patrick Ryan is going to do? He's going to right. rewrite the history of alchemy. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that is. Brilliant. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, my, my friend Anderson Todd is doing some similar work on his. And so I, I think I, I'm very interested in Goethe and the new way of seeing um, because it seems to me to be integrating a lot of what we're talking to get about. And I see him as somebody just like Spinoza is responding to Descartes and the meaning crisis, and I got to get more into this, I see Goethe as responding, because he does. He's reading Kant and then ultimately rejecting Kant and Newton, because they form a, a pair, right? You have to always consider the two together. And so it's interesting that, that, what, that Goethe has the, Goethe claims, so this is, a, this is meant as a, as a friendly challenge to you. He claims that an integration between them is possible. Uh, and Nietzsche seemed to agree with him that he had achieved that kind of integration between the Apollonian and the Dionysian, and both sides of the Dionysian, uh, too. Because, of course, Goethe is tremendously familiar with the shadow. We see this all the way through Faust. Yeah. So he's, he's tremendously aware of the shadow, but he's also aware of this other side of the Dionysian that you're pointing to, because you can see it in his work on, on the optics and on the, on the, on the biology. And yet he, see, he claims that he's able to integrate that with, you know, the Apollonian uh, uh, in his work and in his writing. 
So what, what do you think about the possibility of integration? Because you said, I, I'm not, this is, this, this is mm. another way, Alexander, of asking my tricky question mm. of how do we get, how do we get, without giving any one of these primacy, how do we get the monism, the integration, without a reduction? Yes, cut them up into emergence vectors. I try to keep them separate. But they're interaffording. See how that work goes. Yeah. But but the point is they're interaffording. That's the thing. They they see. Oh, there's they, gravity and all kinds of shit that actually affects them. The, 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 everything is affecting everything else, but it's not the same. As I, well, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not claiming. That's exactly right. I'm not claiming reduction. I'm not saying they're all this or they're all this. I'm trying to get. Is there an alternative sense? I mean, I, I see Whitehead is struggling for this. I mean, and that's what he's trying to do with his idea of God. He's trying to struggle with how do I have true novelty, true process, yet true intelligibility, and yet a, a kind of integrated monism, because he ultimately had, he was trying to, he was definitely trying to integrate the emergence and the emanation together. That's clear um, in what he's trying to do. And so this, this is the thing that, uh, oh, I've solved that. I solved that with physics. <laughs> I, have two, <laughs> I have two time dimensions in my work. So there's time and hypertime. Uh, and actually now the physicists are getting very interested because they discovered that the big bounce happened and not the big bang. So there was yeah. a prior universe that collapsed. And since space time happens after the big bounce, that means there must be another time dimension, hypertime. So rather than talk about hyperspace like Ed Witten does in his physics, I'm much more interested in hypertime. And, and again, we can think the world without space. We can't think the world without time. But that means it opens up the possibility that the damn giantist in India were right all along. The time ultimately is hypertime, has a circular characteristic to it, and linear time only occurs after something like Big Bang. You, you now sound like Plotinus through and through. <laughs> I was gonna like. I was gonna say. Time is the moving circle of eternity, right? And the one is the singularity beyond. The Maybe Alexander's d dislike of, of Platonic uh, idealism is is because he's so intimate with it on, on some level. It's like. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, you're more I'm, of a I'm with the Neoplatonist. I just, I, I'm with Aristotle's accusations against Plato, oh, uh, yeah. except that I'm a Heracl Heracliton. So Heraclitus is my Greek, okay? He, yeah. he was a Kurd. He was Iranian. So obviously he introduced Zoroastrian thinking to the Greeks. Uh, I, I also love Heraclitus. Yeah, exactly. Much. How can you not? It's just like, and he comes up with logos and he comes up with dialectics and all these things yeah. too. And, but we only have the fragments, right? So, uh, but, you know, I see Aristotle's accusations against Plato as very warranted. And then, of course, Aristotle mimicked the Persians and conquered the Persian Empire with Alexander the Great right after that, which is amazing, right? Certainly priest, if anybody, with the chief take. But I think Plotinus and, and, and the Neoplatonists are actually key here because, to, to me at least, historically, to get out of the dualism trap and definitely go for the more modest worldview, which is where I want to stay in all my work. And yeah. that, well, you and I are deep agreement like about that. You and I are in deep agreement about yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, gentlemen, I, I need to go soon. Uh, we slotted this for <laughs> I love these conversations. John, you're adorable. Well, Alexander, <laughs> I, I really I, I really enjoyed this. I would like to do this again. And by uh, the way, psychedelics among the Sorastans is called Halma. <laughs> Okay. And Central Asia during antiquity had even more psychedelic plants than Peru does today. You've been warned. Okay. I, I believe you about that. <laughs> and, and, and Andrew, uh, I, I wanted to thank you for excellent moderation. 
Oh, I don't know. I, I, I felt a little bit out of my league tonight. I felt like I'm stunned or something by all the ideation and I don't know how to uh, <laughs> absorb it, but thank you very much. No, I, I think, I think um, uh, uh, having you here as the third term was very helpful. I, I, I felt that it really afforded uh, the conversation into a, into a dialogos, that it was flowing back and forth between Alexander and I very fluently. So I, I, I oh, great. To yeah. that. I yeah, to we, Andrew and I become great fans of threesomes. So yeah, yeah. Threesomes That's all I'm doing now is I yeah, have another yeah. one with you and, and Zach tomorrow, John. And yeah, I know. I'll be there. All we're doing is, <laughs> all we're doing is threesomes now, it seems yeah. like. Yeah, there you go. Uh -huh. All right, well, gentlemen. Uh, Alexander, thank you very much. Love uh, you to bits, John. I love you to yeah, bits, Andrew. Really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation yes, tremendously. Yes. Uh, I thought it was very fruitful. Uh, I yep. thought it was really fruitful. I, and I, I, have, I, I have a deeper appreciation and understanding for your thinking. Could, mm. uh, maybe at some point if you could recommend, um, you know, because my, sorry, I, I'm already reading a thousand books for my work. Mm. But, uh, you know, a book that you think captures this interpretation of Zoroastrian religion and philosophy, the way you're presenting it. I think yeah, you've got to learn Avesta. It's similar to Sanskrit. And then you go back to the origin and you read the Gothos in its original <laughs> language. And you, you discover that all the English and German essays you ever read are terrible. You, so, you've got the time to do that. You've got to think Avesta. You've got to you think Sanskrit your, your to understand holiday. the East. You can't escape. <laughs> Okay. You have to learn the language. Oh, I'm it. hoping you could recommend a secondary source. In, in no, <laughs> no you, I, I'm going to be the authority on that one. So when it comes to the Sorastan Renaissance, I'm fighting with some of these Iranian nationalists at the moment. And I'm certainly siding with the Kurds. There's a huge Sorastan Renaissance in Iraqi Kurdistan at the moment. And of course, okay. because they're sick of the Islamic State. So that's exactly why that well, Renaissance is really happening. I'll, I'll look forward to your book on it then, because if, okay. if, if you're going <laughs> to hold yourself as the authority, that's fair enough. Gentlemen, yeah. I want to thank you both. This is the example of the kind of dialogue I like to have with people. Uh, and it was very fruitful and very enjoyable. And so I hope we can do it again. Yes. Yeah. Thanks so thank much. Thank you, guys. Okay. Take good care, everyone. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care.